standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We continue our study of John's gospel together this morning. A few things I want you to listen for as we read. Where is Jesus from? Where is Jesus going? And then the invitation that Jesus offers. Where is he from? Where is he going? And the invitation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Again, John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need your help. Lord, we need to be redefined as people. A redefined origin story. A redefined future. We come together desperately thirsty as those who need our thirst quenched by you. May your spirit be at work in us. And may rivers of living water flow from us to a dry and thirsty world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, today we're thrown into the Feast of Booths. And in some senses, the confusion that we saw last week continues about the identity of Jesus. Specifically today, where he's from and where he's going, these two realities form the truth of Jesus and belief in him for all of us today. Where are you from? 
I get asked this question often in Shreveport. Having lived here for some years, uh, I've learned that um, people want a, a specific location. So um, they're thinking like, what school did you go to? They don't mean college, they mean high school. And that kind of lets them pinpoint where you're from and kind of the circle of friends you may have here. Whether you're from here originally or not, in some senses, every single one of us here today understand the value of where you're from. In some ways, that informs much of our identity. If you live in the United States, but you're not from here, if you live here as an immigrant, that informs some of how you see your life. Geography, in that sense, matters. I was born in the South, Macomb, Mississippi, the very same hospital as my sister Melissa, which she told me about a year and a half ago that was torn down, so a piece of our legacies forever erased. But that matters, being from a place matters. There's something about that that defines the way I think about the world. In addition to, to knowing where we're from and, and, and valuing the, the things that are good in that and also offering critique of, of that, um, there's also something very vital about knowing where we're going in life. This question, too, dominates much of the landscape of our lives. From the time we're little, what do you want to be when you grow up? A firefighter, a doctor, a lawyer, a mechanic, an artist, a dancer, you can answer in any number of ways, and we do this from the time we're a little bitty all the way through high school into college. This becomes more and more important. Where are you going? What is the trajectory of your life? Again, all of this informs our identity. Who, who are we? What do we want out of life? Especially as we get older, these questions get harder to answer. What may seem very vivid to us when we're young gets more and more hazy. I used to know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I didn't achieve that, and so now what? Some of us look back on our upbringing and where we're from with angst. Look to the future with some sense of not knowing. In this text today, we're invited to look at Jesus' origin. Where is he from? And where is he going? And more importantly, what did that do to him? How did his answer of those questions inform the way he lives his life? Jesus could answer both of those questions with crystal clear precision. He knows where he's from. And he knows exactly where he's going. And in light of those realities, he can offer sinners, recalcitrant sinners like you and me, he can offer them himself. Come to me and drink. So that's the way we'll approach the text today. Where is Jesus from? Where is he going? And then this invitation. Our passage opens with another crowd. Previously, we've seen groups identified as the Jews, the Samaritans, the brothers of Jesus. Today, there's another group, the people of Jerusalem. Notice verse 25 and 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, 
Is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Again, last week we saw lots of confusion about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? This group, but also, and we're, we're told that this group is from Jerusalem. So this is, this is not the Galileans coming into Jerusalem for the feast. These are insiders. These guys understand the power dynamics of the city. They know the various factions. They know the Pharisees. They know the Sadducees. They know the power and influence of Herod and Rome. They, they're an informed crowd. And so they see Jesus teaching in the temple, and they're like, what in the world? I thought they were going to arrest him and kill him. This should, this should heighten the threat a little bit. His death is coming. Why aren't they arresting him? The previous crowd tried to make Jesus seem crazy for, for saying that they're coming to kill him. And this crowd knows. He knows they want, this crowd knows that they want Jesus dead. But notice the end of verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We might have a little bit of hope hearing this question. And then it's almost immediately answered. They answer their own question. We know where this man comes from. We know where he's from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They begin asking about the origins of Jesus. His backstory. And so the origin story comes to the forefront. And in this time period, they had a tradition. It was understood that just suddenly the Messiah would pop out of nowhere and things that were horrible would be undone. And, and he would just make all things right. He would line everything up politically. He would handle Rome. He would fix everybody's uh, political issues, social issues. They dismissed Jesus out of hand. We know he's from Capernaum. We know where his home is. He's just a, a homeboy from Nazareth. They have this expectation of Jesus because they know him. And just as last week, if Jesus does not fit our expectations, he's easily dismissed. In this case, I would put it like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. They know too much about him for their own good. They use the fact that they know where he's from to dismiss his claims. And we know there's tremendous misunderstanding. Is that the case with us? Do we know too much about the story of Jesus? Intimately acquainted with his birth. What a great story. Wise men and all the rest. Decorations and lights. We know about his life. We, we, we know all these realities, but do we reject Jesus because of that? Yeah, those stories are great. We appreciate all the stories, but we use that as, as a way to hold him at a distance. It's exactly what the crowd is doing here. So where does Jesus come from? He responds with the question, you know me and where I, uh, in some there's a question and some there's not. You know me and you know where I come from. 
From the jump, he's making it clear that they know some things about him, but not everything. They believe because of their notions that they have Jesus pegged. And he's going to inform them differently. You know me and where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The people have no idea of Jesus' true origin. He lets them know they might have some knowledge of his hometown, but they don't know his origin. He says something surprising. His origin is not a place, but a person. It's not a place, but a person. Jesus is sent from God above. They would have picked up on exactly what Jesus is saying. He is sent by God himself. He comes from him. He's sent by him. Jesus says to them, you know me only in one sense. You know me only in one way. You only know my house, the city of my birth. But you don't know me in this sense, that I came from above. same can be true, true of us. We know certain things about Jesus. We can know certain details about Jesus without knowing him. Jesus doesn't focus on his human origin, which is incredible. Instead, his spiritual origin comes front and center, and this is a major theme all across the Gospel of John. It's vital. A major difference in, in John's gospel between belief and unbelief is knowing this reality about Jesus, where he's from. Listen, I'm just going to give you a sampling. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, John 14, 1.14, his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. John 6.29, the work of this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 14, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know. John 12, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I could go on and on and on. Jesus is saying, I am from God the Father. That is vital for us to know. The difference between life and death in John is knowing exactly where Jesus comes from, coming from the Father. It's very interesting that the creeds, the historic creeds of the church highlight this. The Nicene Creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Vital. Jesus knew where he was from. And again, that distinguishes believers the world over. If you simply dismiss him, oh yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. You're missing it. 
eternally existent with the Father from before all worlds. So again, what may be fuzzy to us is not fuzzy to them. They seek to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is very interesting. So you have this theological reality. They're angry, but then they don't touch Jesus. And you're left scratching your head like, why don't they just arrest him now? I love this quote by A.W. Pink. They could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate son bowed to his father's good pleasure. He was immortal. If it's not his hour, how do you arrest very God of very God? How do you lay a hand on in violence, light, The answer is you don't. But notice there's also a split reaction. Verse 31 says many of the people believed in him. They said when the Christ finally does come, is he going to do more than, than this man? So what does it matter where Jesus is from for us today? What does it matter that we know where we're from? I'll argue that his intimate knowledge of his being sent by the Father informs all of his life. Perfect fellowship in the Trinity. Jesus knew that he was perfectly and utterly loved of the Father. And because he knew these things, he could act with stunning courage in the face of death. Because he knew where he was from, he would go willingly to the cross. That's what it matters in his life. He would face death itself because he knew. He knew exactly who he was. And listen, this is what we have. The offer that we have as Christians to come to Christ We can know our story as well and face life with stunning courage. Near the end of John's gospel, we'll read Jesus say something incredible to his disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. You see how Christ and his origin, he, he, he turns that around because of his finished work, and he offers that to his followers. Peace and being sent, just as he was sent from the Father, so Jesus, through the gospel, is sending us. So we hear where Jesus is from, how about where he is going? Verse 32 gives us ominous foreshadowing. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus' certain knowledge of where he is from turns into fury from the elite in Jerusalem. They hate that. Not only are his words insulting to them, but now he's really getting the attention of the crowd. What he's clearly saying, he's from God. 
There is no mistake. So the backdrop of Jesus' comments are his impending arrest, trial, death, burial, and resurrection. So where would his teaching turn to now? So they kind of define his end, and then he's going he's to utterly upset that. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Just as Jesus pointed to a heavenly origin, here he points to a heavenly destination. He's going to be here a little while longer, and then he's going to return to the Father. In the face of his impending death, he knows where he's going. This is not a confusing issue for him. It's crystal clear. And again, just as knowing where he comes from informs the way he lives his life, so does his certain knowledge of where he's going. Child of God, you are offered that reality. In Christ, we know our destination. It doesn't have to be informed by the things of this world. Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. Again, both the Nicene and Apostles' Creed point this out. Why? Again, why is it so important? It's this. Even before all of this is accomplished, even before all of this is finished, Jesus knows exactly how it's going to go. He's already, before he enters into this physical suffering and death, he, he is already saying, mission accomplished. He utterly knows. He knows he must face the cross, but he knows for certain how it's going to end. Hebrews 12, too, reflects on this, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how he could face the shame. This is how he could, he could welcome and embrace the cross because he knew, he knew for certain his destination, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Listen to the message of Jesus. Where I am, you cannot come. This causes confusion. They think he means some different location. Is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks? Is he going to go teach out there? What he's saying to the, the unbeliever is this. You will not have the same end as me. But what does he say to his disciples Believers, listen to John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In Christ, we are invited into a certain future. We will be with him. 
I think there are so many lessons here for us. Do you know the comfort and the peace, child of God, that comes from knowing where you are going? Know for certain that you will be with Christ. One day he will come back and bring you to himself so that we will always be with the Lord. Paul summarizes like this, Romans 14, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Careers are great. Retirement accounts aren't bad things. But do we know for certain, especially as the people of God, that those things are not ultimate things? That that is not our ultimate direction in life? This is our ultimate direction in Christ. We will be with him in glory. And that reality should shape the way we see ourselves and see others. Child of God, take heart. You know where you're going. So there's lots of hostility facing Jesus. The desire to arrest him and kill him. And, and very soon we'll see that. It's not going to, time doesn't work the same in John's gospel as it does in the others. We'll have an extended period of his teaching, hearing him do these things. But within six months of this, they're going to arrest and kill him. So with that in the backdrop, hard hearts, utterly rejecting Jesus, completely misunderstanding him, how do we expect Jesus would respond to all of that? If it were me, I would wash my hands three times and leave. I've had enough of you people. I'm out of you. But Jesus does something incredible. In the face of the hostility that Jesus is receiving, he offers an invitation. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he defines that. What does it mean to, to come to Jesus and drink? That's a, that's a hard saying, just like we heard earlier, eating of Jesus. What, what, what do you mean? And we saw a lot of people leave, but here it's defined for us. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus had gone up to the feast privately. Not publicly, not as a show of leadership, not as a way to take over. He goes to teach, and he goes to attend, and he goes to, to make something crystal clear. This entire feast is about me. That's what he's saying on the last day. He's, he's utterly defining this whole feast. The Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, is about Jesus. Feast of Booze, as we have already said, is a, is a celebration. Everybody in the city, everybody who comes into the city builds tents and they live in them. Imagine the excitement of all the kids in town. They would love this. Everybody is welcome to a, a, a front yard camp out and a feast. 
In our Old Testament text, we heard the story recounted of Israel being out of water. Again, recalcitrant, hard hearts. And then we heard the, the, the story as it progressed. They, they come and they are making accusations. God says, put me on trial. I'm going to be on the rock. Have the elders pass by. It's a trial. He's on trial. And then you take this staff, this incredible staff. It's done incredible things. It's the power of God, right? And, and, and strike the rock. It's crazy. The people are the ones grumbling and complaining. And God says, I will take the punishment. And then from this rock will flow water that saves their life. So here we are at the end of the Feast of Booths, the last and great day. And on that day, we learned from other Jewish literature that the priests would take huge amounts of water from the pool of Siloam and they would parade up the streets and into the temple and they would pour huge amounts of water into the basin of the altar, so much so that it would fill up and spill over onto the floor of the temple. Into this scene. Jesus raises his voice and offers everyone there to come and drink of him. What an amazing statement. You see, Jesus knew that he was looking at thirsty people. They were all thirsty for a Messiah. They were dying for the lack of a Messiah, and he's clearly telling him who he is. He's saying, you see all these things going on in this feast. All of this is about me. So much we could say about the thirst of Israel and the cost to Christ. Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ it was him all along. It, it always had been. What does it mean to drink of Christ? Again, we're, we're told clearly, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. To believe in Christ is to drink of him. Those who are thirsty here today, Drink of Jesus. Believe in him. J.C. Ryle says, quote, The saints of God in every age have been men and women who drank of this fountain by faith and were relieved. They felt their guilt and emptiness and thirsted for deliverance. They heard a full supply of pardon, mercy, and grace in Christ crucified for all penitent believers, end quote. Do you know your guilt? Your emptiness? Your thirst for deliverance? This is what sin produces in us. We're like Israel in the wilderness. We're hard-hearted. Do you sense your thirst? Know that Jesus is the only one who can quench it. 
Later in John's Gospel, we'll see that while Jesus offers living water to others, it will come at the cost of his own life. He himself will be thirsty. One of his, he said relatively few things from the cross, and one of the things that he says is, I thirst. Jesus offers living water to you and to me, and yet on the cross in his suffering, he will be thirsty. What amazing good news that he took our thirst so that we could be full of him. We're also told that from the belly of those who believe, rivers of living water are going to flow. And this is about the spirit who would come to the people of God. This is how water continues to flow all over the world. Yesterday, we heard incredible stories going on in Hungary. Amazing things happening there. People seeing and hearing the gospel for the first time because of this devastating war. Do you know what is happening there? Rivers of living water are flowing out of the belly of Christians. Jesus offered us to come and drink of him, and we can continue to offer living water to others, pointing to Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And we'll see a glimpse of it with Jesus himself on the cross. In his death, they take a spear and they jab him in the side, and what does John tell us happens? Water flows out. In his death, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the spirit would come and the gospel will never be stopped. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's great book, Silver Chair. Heroine of the book is Jill. At one point, she sees a lion and for fear, she, she breaknecks into a forest, a wilderness. She's there for a while, and she, realized, she realizes she's dying of thirst. She hears a gurgling brook as she continues to walk. It's in the distance. She staggers over to it, and again, she sees a lion. She finally gets to this refreshing water, and there's a lion looming over the brook. The lion says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. She doesn't move. She's terrified. The lion again, are, are you not thirsty? Jill, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. Jill, may I? Stammering a bit. Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion only answers with a low growl. Again, Jill, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. 
Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, says the lion. See, this offer of Jesus is utterly exclusive. There is no other stream. And we come together, a group of sinners who believe somewhere in our hearts that there are other things that will satisfy us. And we need to hear our Lord say, come to me, you thirsty person. I am the only thing that will satisfy you. Christ offers utter satisfaction in him. No other fount but Christ will satisfy And so the only question left is, have you drunk deeply of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible invitation to rebels like us. Thank you that because you knew where you were come from and where you were going, you could offer this living water to sinners who desperately need it. Remind our sinful hearts this morning that there is no other place to go and be satisfied. Help us, Lord. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.